It's not the first time that we talk about the challenges of mergers and acquisitions on this show, but this instance almost gave way to a physical altercation. That's the challenge that faced Jenny Herald, VP of Product Evangelism at Quantiv. Now, Jenny started her career in the US military, and there's some really interesting insights from that time. But nowadays, she's all about pushing OKRs. I find that OKRs don't always have the best reputation at work, but once you hear Jenny talk about their power, I know you're going to be convinced. Let's take it away. Welcome to the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. I'm your host, Rob D. Willis, and I work with tech companies all over the world to teach them communication skills and public speaking. Join me as I talk to tech leaders who have seen it all. You'll hear their stories and learn from their experience. So buckle up and let's uncover those gems they won't teach you in an MBA. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for invite. For those people who don't know you yet, could you just introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your company, Quantive, and about your team? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Jenny Harold. I'm the VP of Product Evangelism at Quantive. Uh, what that really means is I get to talk about OKRs, objectives, and key results. I talk about how our product, uh, Quantive Results, helps organizations close the so-called strategy execution gap using the OKR methodology. So that's phenomenally what we do is... Um, Software as a service, which seems to be kind of all the rage in software right now, is SaaS businesses. So SaaS is very much what we're focused on uh, and helping organizations really achieve the results that they want. Um, yeah, I think that's that's it in a nutshell. I also, actually, yeah, I, I host a podcast of my own, Dreams with Deadlines, shameless mm -hmm. plug. Uh, we're going over 60 yeah. episodes strong now. I've been doing it for over three years, talking to business leaders about the challenges of scale, the challenges of strategy execution uh, in pretty much every environment, every size of business even, uh, and different vantage points because I talk to different leaders in different departments. Uh, and you mentioned what team? Yeah. I work for the marketing team. You used to serve in the U.S. Air Force, that's yeah, correct. That yeah, that was kind of the start of my professional career was an officer in the United States Air Force. You got it right. Awesome. And you've moved to crazy Berlin and particularly the tech scene as well. New country, new environment. And I'm just wondering, as a fellow expat here, how was that transition to you into new world, new country, new everything? Surprisingly easy compared to the move from East Coast United States to San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, yeah? So kind of the transition was uh, two years prior to moving to Berlin. We moved from Washington, D.C. metro area to San Francisco, like proper. So for those who are familiar with San Francisco, most people talk about street intersections because it's such a small seven by seven mile patch of land. And we lived on Scott mm -hmm. and Waller. So lower hate kind of meets the Bose Triangle for people familiar with San Francisco. Moving from East Coast, conservative, people wear suits to San Francisco where it's okay to be naked. <laughs> <laughs> Any time of day or night, going from, you know, kind of a, a very densely political environment, right? Because this is Washington, D.C. Local news is mm -hmm. national news to San Francisco, where I feel like it was just lots of hippies meet technology. It was such a stark difference. And so just unplug us from West Coast United States to Berlin, where it's even more be whoever you want to be, do whatever yeah. you want to do. So long as you don't hurt anybody, it's fine. 
I felt like that transition was actually quite easy, even though we didn't have any friends. We didn't know the language. And for those who are wondering, we actually had even never stepped into Europe ever. We moved straight here not knowing anything, anybody, or yeah, basically had no knowledge of what Europeans were like or what Germans were like or Berliners for that matter, which I've learned Berlin is not representative of Germany, which I think, Rob, you probably can appreciate. This is not... No, I can certainly appreciate that. This is a whole different country. Uh, Berlin is... Yeah, it it really is. It really is. And I also find that, you know, working in the worlds that we do, we're also in like another kind of little tech bubble within the city as well. So going to different parts of Berlin, you're going to find very different people and very different ways of of interacting as well. But I'm really interested in that that transition, you know, from East Coast, West Coast, Biggie, Tupac, that whole move. And going from what I imagine to be a very structured world in the Air Force to working in tech, which is all about disruption. Mm. First of all, what was what was the coolest thing about that for you? Uh, and this is going to sound really lame, I think. Just the the freedom, I think. There's a there mm-hmm. is a lot of freedom. Unlike what many people think about the military, they think command and control type of structure. What's surprising if you actually work in it is. There is this idea of commander's intent. Like, what is the commander or the leader of your overall organization directionally wanting everyone to go? And then the individuals that support that have an opportunity to respond to that commander's intent. In tech, depending on where you are, I think, in the the life stage of the organization, like if you're early stage startup, that commander's intent may not exist. Mm-hmm. You walk into an environment and are like, well, what are we trying to accomplish? What are we trying to do? Where do we need to go? Who's our customer? A lot of these questions are still being figured out. Whereas when you're in the military, your customer is very clear. Like you're either, you know, if you're a specific function for us, I was responsible as a deputy comptroller for military and travel pay and reimbursement. Like our customer was the base, like the base employees. Mm -hmm. I knew what they needed. We knew what they needed to do. We needed, we knew what our rules and responsibilities were. And then you plug us in tech and it's like, who's responsible for what? When you're in a really small environment, like we were back in the day in Wonderless when I first moved here, everyone's responsible mm-hmm. for everything, I feel like. And the freedom to be able to explore kind of what you thought your limits were in terms of sol- problem solving was very freeing because at the time, when I was active duty, like I had volumes and volumes of regulation that told me what I was allowed and not allowed to do based on generations Mm -hmm. of people before that figured things out and said, here are kind of your guidelines. Here are the rule sets. And from this rule set, you, you need to figure out how to make your decisions. I did not have such constraints when I moved into tech. It was largely, we're going to write the playbook now. No one's going to write this for us. And that freedom was very exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's it's actually an analogy which has been used a bit, I mean, famously by Steve Jobs, who says, we're not the Navy, we're the pirates. Right. Um, but then also by Reed Hoffman, who talks about in Blitzscaling that at some point, the pirates need to become a Navy. And what you said about the commander's intent is really interesting there, because I, I wonder when a company gets bigger and 
with your move into uh, Wunderlist, acquired by Microsoft into this very large and very established right. organization. Is that something which you feel become became more relevant or you were more ready to deal with? Or how, how did you relate it? Did it? How did it fit together in your head? Right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, wow, this is a really, this is a tough question. But I think I'm going to try to answer it this way. How it fit in my head is you're, we were taking basically an organization that felt largely like the Wild West and then pushing mm-hmm. it into like a very established, massive city like, you know, like Berlin. Like it's like taking mm-hmm. people who were trying to figure out how to make fire and then you come to Berlin and you're like, we have induction stoves. Like it's, it was just bizarre trying to figure out that transition. And I actually was very fortunate enough to be asked to be the, at the time, the lead product manager that helped in that transition mm-hmm. from startup to scale up to now enterprise incorporation into what I thought of as the mothership. Like mm-hmm. the transition was tough because we had an idea of what Wonderless was, what Microsoft to do would be. That's the current product offering that we eventually morphed into. The The massive challenge for us was figuring out how to align the commander's intent to higher level commanders, as it were. Satya had an mm-hmm. idea of what he was trying to accomplish with Microsoft at that time, coming off of the bomber area era, right? And then he was picking up the reins. He had his established team. His idea was subscription models versus years and years, decades of, you know, we're going to give people CDs. They're going to change what they're going to go do. And everyone's locked into this price for our year, three year, however many year contract. We're only working with enterprises. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. he's thinking to himself, how do I inject and infuse innovation in the organization? I remember at the time, Chi Lu, who I think went on to Tencent, was his CTO, and he was uh, he visited Berlin, and we got to talk to him. And I asked the question, I was like, well, why did you acquire us? Like, what benefit do we have to this massive organization that is Microsoft, to your point, that's well-established, that has a customer base? They know, they print money. Like, it's insane mm-hmm. how much money Microsoft can make. And he described it this way. He's like, imagine stormtroopers if you're familiar with star wars we have people who know how to advance the empire they're good at it they're cloned to do it Mm -hmm. they've been doing it for 10 plus years but we need people who are going to think different we want people who will be defectors kind of like finn because that movie had come out at the time and that's what they believed acquisitions like at that time sunrise got acquired accompli who became microsoft office mobile and then Wonderlist, who became Microsoft To Do, which is now embedded kind of throughout the ecosystem within Microsoft. The idea was infusing and injecting innovation. And so the balance, I think, thinking about commander's intent is how do you maintain the current kind of status quo? Like, how do you maintain your current customer base and not rock them too much? But how do you also continue to build a moat of innovation? And for Microsoft, it really was trying to figure out how to align multiple commanders, if you will, to an overall larger vision of productivity for everyone. Because at that point, right, Mm -hmm. we know that most everybody has a PC or a Mac. Like that vision had been realized. Well, what's the next chapter beyond that? 
And it really was, you know, how can Microsoft produce uh, the greatest amount of productivity within the workforce, no matter who you are, no matter how big your organization, whether you're individual team, division, enterprise. And so the alignment to that greater idea and trying to suss that out at first was quite challenging because the organization Mm -hmm. is so large. But after a while, you start to figure out kind of who proverbially is in the zoo and you start to make these connections, Mm -hmm. start to see, ah, so, you know, this part of the org wants to achieve this. This is what we do. Can we support this idea that ladders up to a bigger idea? And that, that alignment is probably the hardest thing that I had witnessed. And even today, like the customers that we work with, that's the hardest thing to figure out is, you know, what is that commander's intent? How do you communicate to the rest of the organization so that you can get that strategic alignment? Yeah, I love that idea of how you're thinking about the commander's intent in the role of an acquisition. And there was a story about another acquisition that you wanted to tell. And I, it's to do with, you know, another challenge that you've had as a leader. And I'd, I'd love it if you could share that with the audience. Yeah, sure. Uh, unfortunately, the company does not exist anymore because we've run out of funding. But when... Uh, In a prior life, I was fortunate to be the chief operating officer of a a startup that was kind of pre-product. The team was rather large. I would say like over 80 people. One of my kind of professional colleagues had invited me to meet the CEO and the kind of managing director at the time. Uh, And fortunately, I got the job. They were like, you know what? You make sense. You know, let's figure out how we're going to apply operational rigor to this kind of burgeoning business. The unfortunate thing was somewhere along the line, within that first year after being hired, that professional colleague of mine that kind of brought me on was asked to leave. And it was quite challenging because she had a lot of responsibility having um, led product design and engineering. Like she was responsible for getting this product to market. I had experience in that arena before because of the Wonderlist transition to Microsoft to do and figuring out how to launch that and sunset the previous business. So I I assumed those responsibility. And at the same time, we had this 80-person organization. We had decided as a business to merge with another organization, which I won't name. But the idea being that we would own those assets and the ownership of those assets would just make it much easier to ingest them into the platform that we were going to launch with. Again, aligning commander's intent because... We had a CEO, they had a CEO, who gets to win decision-making responsibilities over what at the time. And then for the remainder of us, like they had an equivalent product engineering design person. We had a product engineering design person at the time. They had a COO. Like a lot of these roles were redundant. And I think one of the challenges of um, doing any kind of M&A activity is figuring out who is going to end up being on the leadership team? And then from there, how are they going to work together? And based on the post-acquisition, post-merger activities, you know, what does this mean for the organization directionally? Like, what is the next logical step for the business? How do you align those plans? And then how do you align all of the individuals that are still working toward potentially like a new idea, a new future? And trying to wrangle all of those pieces together in a very short amount of time because, I mean, you only have so much money when you're in a startup, right? We always talk about burn rates. We talk about how much runway we have left. 
at that time, like we were concerned and rightfully so. And unfortunately, we didn't make it. We ran out of money and weren't able to secure a next round for various reasons. It was gut-wrenching, I can tell you. But before any of that happened, the challenges of trying to align leadership and all of the people behind a new idea, given all of the mm-hmm. changes in who in reporting lines, in strategic intent, direction, and in planning. Like it was it was hard. And that I, I feel like I'm it was very, very difficult. I learned a lot though from that time. And one of the greatest learnings that I had was really applying what what seems like really common sense. You need to observe what's happening. You need to orient yourself to new surroundings. And then based on some sort of goal setting, which we'll talk about OKRs, that would have been amazing to say, okay, if we have the strategy, we think that this is the right thing to do. What are our goals? How are we going to measure that success? And how do we communicate to the to the rest of our with within our leadership team, and then you know furthermore to the rest of the organization that this is what we want to do, and this is how we're going to measure it, and this is how we're going to stay accountable, and here are all the plans mm-hmm. that we think that we need to invest in so that we can realize these outcomes. Like I wish at that time we had thought about it this way, uh, and I've come to find out several organizations that have been far more successful in the transition have aligned behind something like OKRs to kind of jumpstart that process and make it a lot cleaner. Do you feel that this lack of direction was something you felt at the time or was it just unfolding and you didn't really know why? I knew why. And I think for a lot of individuals that maybe have gone through an M&A, you you know why. There's a lot of strong personalities that exist on the C-suite and vying and jockeying for position, right? Like that's, it's like the understatement of the century, right? C-suite, like there's a special kind of person that decides I'm going to be a C-level and I'm going to be the one to call the shots and the buck stops with me. When you have two established businesses that are effectively trying to merge together, one acquires the other. Mergers, I think, are a little bit harder, maybe, uh, because there is no hierarchy. You're kind of equals in the conversation. We're merging businesses so that we can achieve this grander outcome because we are greater together than the sum of our parts, right? And so then when you mm-hmm. have these strong personalities that are jockeying, vying for position, trying to retain their share of authority, responsibility, title, it can get really messy and emotional mm-hmm. because a lot of people identify with their work as being you know, who they are and what they're about on any given day, especially as an American. What, who are you? What do you do? This is probably the first two questions you get asked as an American, and then you're going to tell them your position, which is absurd because in Europe they don't do that, apparently. Yeah, so did I know? Yeah, it was strong personalities that could not come to agreement at some point. I can imagine it must have been I mean, frustrating. When you know what's going on and it's not changing and you can see what's going on, it must be very, very frustrating. And I'm just wondering, was there maybe like, one situation which really kind of represents this one conflicting interest between the two parties, one disagreement that you think would really illustrate kind of what that felt like in this moment? Yeah, I think so. It was an all hands. I'll never forget it. And here was our CEO getting in front of the whole organization, telling all of us what he thought we needed to go do, why we needed to go do it, when one of our lead engineers stood up and said, but what about all this stuff that we've been doing? 
Like we worked so hard to get to this point and now you're telling us to scrap months of work so that we can ingest this new thing. It wasn't delivered very well, I think. And the new mm-hmm. CTO was in the audience and I remember he was quietly observing. I stood up because uh, it it was effective it effectively looked like it was going to it was going to start to get physical it was a fight it was it, it really? there were some very emotional people in the room i mean can you imagine months and months mm-hmm. maybe a year or so worth of work basically felt like it was going to be flushed down the drain because we had a different idea and we didn't necessarily inform people ahead of time or explain the rationale very cleanly like we should have uh, it was more of a very much top-down cut command and control delivered message. A lot of people in tech that does not land well. People like to be informed in advance what's happening and wa- want to be a part of the journey and certainly want to know the why. Like when Simon Sinek talks about, you know, leaders start with why. Gosh, there couldn't be a more true moment. And I remember standing up in front of this group. I was like really nervous about what to do because I was like, someone needs to stop this and I'm not sure anyone has the guts to do it. So I stood Mm -hmm. up and I was like, okay, I need you all to stop. (laughs) This is not productive, especially in front of the whole organization. Let's start here. And I started to apply, you know, the difficult conversations framework. If you've read the book, I started with the goal. What are we trying to achieve here? Like, do we agree? And we needed to find common ground. Do we agree that what we need to do is we need to launch this product And it needs to be for this audience. And the acquisition of this company helps accelerate that outcome because X, Y, Z. Do we agree that that's true? And I looked at the CEO and he shook his head, yes. And I looked at the CTO and he shook his head, yes. And I looked at the former, what was the VP of engineering that led this whole thing for a while? He shook his head, yes. It's like, okay. So we agree that this is the starting point. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about what you're seeing, what you're seeing, what you're seeing, because we need to resolve that, but we're not going to do that here. Not in, mm-hmm. not an open forum. That's ridiculous. And, and right, because you're just going to have like, what at the time, you know. A million right, opinions. Exactly. If you talk to any given leader, it's so funny. Like, you can ask a simple question like, who is your customer? You have 12 executives. 12 of them will give you a different answer sometimes. And this is pre-product, so the world is our ocean kind of thing. You could have done anything at that point. So then we we walked away from that conversation. I kind of shut it down. I was like, we're going to carry on with the rest of the material, which we did about the plans. So we got kind of tactical. And I promised to the team that we were going to tie this back to strategy where we had like legitimate ideas and definitions of all of the key pieces that we needed to kind of link everything together, what was already in flight, what needed to be adjusted, what needed to be added Mm -hmm. net new, and why that would be because, you know, directionally we had figured out how the merger would actually land, who would be responsible for what in terms of accountability and reporting lines, and then sort it from there. But I had never seen anything like that, even to date, before or after, of the amount of passion, anger, frustration... (laughs) Mm-hmm. voiced in public forum effectively it was it was nerve-wracking and at the much. end of the day like i remember some people walked up to me and was like thank you for stopping that because it was unproductive and for a lot of us we simply don't care we just want someone to make a decision 
And that was, I think that was probably the most indicative of the, the challenge of the, the, the merger or any merger is like, who gets decision making rights? What are those decisions mm -hmm. and how do they get communicated to everyone? And it sounds also like those discussions get bogged down in things which are kind of in the past. Uh, we've been working on this. I've been in charge of that rather than what you did in that conversation, which was very much turned things the towards the future. So it's no longer you're right or you're wrong. It's we are trying to get here. What is the best exactly. way to get there? And I wonder whether that experience you went through is what led you to essentially now dealing with strategy as very much the basis of what you're doing with OKRs and so on. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of reading about OKRs because I, I love the, the theory behind it. I, I apply it kind of loosely to my own business and, and life. I, I think it's a really effective framework created by Andy Grove. And sure, lots of the audience actually work with OKRs already. But in my experience and the people I've spoken to, sadly, it's not got the best reputation because most people I talk to who are not maybe in senior leadership, they view OKRs as that thing you have to go and listen to someone talk about for four hours. And they give you this very high level stuff, which people don't really connect to. And I also noticed in your own post that some people see it as a burden. So I'm wondering, what do you think companies are getting so wrong about OKRs? It's a few things, I think. One of them being, there's just not a good reason why. Like that, that was so emblematic from the story I just shared with you. Like, why are you doing OKRs at all? If the answer mm -hmm. is because Google does it, that's a really bad answer. And if you're going to start to talk to the organization as if you've read the book Measure What Matters and you're saying we're doing this because, you know, we want to focus, we want to, you know, we want to align. We That's not strong enough, I think. There needs to be a reason why the leadership team decided to use OKRs. And that needs to be expressed as broadly and as frequently as necessary so everyone gets that message. That's the first. Mm -hmm. Once you've established that, people get it. They're like, oh, we're doing this because we were an organization that continues to grow like Microsoft. And we do a lot of mergers and acquisition. How do you align? Someone shared this with me, one of our OKR champions in Adobe. Imagine you have 12 ships in the water and they're all pointing to different shores. But they're all in the mm -hmm. same ocean and they're near each other. That's how it feels to us. And that's how they described kind of the current image of their business is growing through M&A and a bunch of boats pointing at different shores. The why could be we need to be pointed toward the same shore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is the story of alignment to try to figure out corporately who is our customer? What, what, how do they align to the broader vision? In order to be successful, we want to make sure that everyone's goals support the same overall mission, vision, and strategy. Great. That's your why. Go do that. You know, the second reason mm -hmm. I think is that organizations are maybe ill-equipped. They get through the OKR theory with their teams, but they don't make that much investment in actually working out the underlying business model so that teams that are involved with creating their OKRs understand the inflection points and points of leverage that they can actually exercise to great, to 
create that change in where the needle is driving, right? Like that takes a lot of education and business acumen to be able to sit down, allow team some time to think through what it is that they're doing. What are the most meaningful things that they can do to move the needle? Where are they going to get that data? They need to, ha- they need to have some level of data literacy. And so this also takes education and training, but more than anything, it takes practice. A lot of businesses get it wrong where they're just like, well, it's not working and they've done it for one quarter or two quarters. I used to do a lot of lifting pre COVID, like Olympic style lifting. One of my OKRs, my mm-hmm. key results was to lift 115 kilograms off the ground deadlift three times. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that was a goal. There was no way from day one I was going to do that. It took me over a year to eventually get there. If you talk to anyone who's in the practice of OKRs, it takes them at least three cycles to do it in a a way that's well. So you have to be able to stomach failure and to embed learning into the process. A lot of teams that struggle with this, it's all about delivery and focused on like, when are you going to ship the new thing? And it's like, wait, wait, wait. To do this properly, you need to give teams the allowance of like, what did we do? What was the impact? What did we learn? And that retrospective at a a broader scale needs to happen. And I guess the third that I would give, besides the why and data literacy effectively and equipping that, is actually pushing some sort of like, what's in it for them? Like, Mm -hmm. if they were to do this and they were to do it well, what would happen? And if it didn't go well, what would happen? If there is no answer to those mm-hmm. questions, then you're doing OKRs as a lip service. There's no incentive. There is no, you know, there's nothing to support this grander idea that you have. And so you have to have an understanding of like, how do we reward and recognize people who are actually killing it with their OKRs? And conversely, what do we do with people or teams that maybe underperform? The mm-hmm. answer could be, we need to, to find out uh, what's happening. We need to maybe apply more resources, give them more funding, provide more training. <laughs> you can't just create an OKR, tell people, go reach this thing, and not negotiate with them what do you need in order to be successful to get to that end state. It might be time mm-hmm. where like, 20% of their time needs to be dedicated to achieving that OKR. 80% of it running the business type of maintenance work. Great. But you have to have those conversations. People need to understand what the overall governance, guidance, and rule sets are. And, and it, so it really is about changing operationally the business. It is not, let's just adopt this new framework, create these OKRs, and we're good. There's a whole methodology mm-hmm. that is behind it. If you're not thinking about it that way, then you're liable to fail because you're not actually doing OKRs. You're doing some, I hate to use this word, bastardized version of it. It sounds like people employ it almost as a sort of like pimped up checklist. Like I'm giving you this loads of stuff. I want you to do it. Take it off. If you do it, we'll give you more money. Don't do it. You're fired. Maybe not so severe, but it's very carrot stick. Go through all of this, deliver it. Not the strategy which gives people that internal motivation and then shows them a way of understanding whether they're achieving what they're I mean, look at it this way, and this is what I tell senior leaders, because I remember one time I was sitting in a room of CIOs. I'd given this presentation. People were like, wow, that's amazing, Jenny. 
Thank you so much for explaining it so fully. How do you get anyone engaged with this process? And I, I sat there and I, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I can't imagine how many times I've gotten this answer. Like, how do you get people engaged with OKRs? And I looked at them and I said, how did you get into the role that you are today? And I, you know, I answered the question, basically. You were able to take the resources that you had to gain outsized impacts for the business. And when you were able to demonstrate that, they gave you more. And then you were able to create more outsized impact based on what you got, right? People, funding, mm-hmm. time, whatever. This is what you need to go do. You did it and you knocked it out of the park and they trusted you to do more. When we get hired to do, to, for a new job, they don't ask you what you did. They ask you what your results were. What were your impact to the business? No matter what role. And to do OKR as well is basically training people to think like this all the time. We are effectively mm-hmm. equipping a lot of people to be able to think more strategically, which honestly, you hit a certain point, like a wall in your career where someone will probably tell you, you need to think more strategically. And it's uber frustrating when no one actually tells you mm-hmm. what the crap that means. And then you take on an actual methodology that's trying to tell you how to do that and giving you the latitude to potentially fail so that you can learn and experiment more. We're creating a bunch of people who can think like that through this method. That's the value. The value is we're equipping people to think strategically about their work, to create value, to make impact meaningful outsized returns for what you t- you get and that is pretty awesome and i love this from somebody who told me about this before i think it's blake if you listen to my podcast like imagine getting from your peers like this high five moment dude you did that that's pretty awesome good for you like has a value look at how many customers that we serve look at how they actually we changed people's actual behavior in this experience. Look at how we broke into a new market and now we exist on seven, con- you know, whatever, instead of the three that we started with. It took us two years to get there, but we finally made it. If we look at speed and scale, which John Doerr wrote a book after he wrote what Measure What Matters, he's trying to figure out how to apply this methodology to our climate crisis. He believes it is possible is the kind of impact that we're talking about when you use these methods. Not the tick the box, not the carrot and stick. That the reward Mm -hmm. is you did amazing things with your intellect, with the resources that you had, with your team, and you had a high five moment. Your work had meaning and it had purpose and people Mm -hmm. saw it. That's pretty cool. No, it is. It's great. And what you're also making me think of is how people, I I don't like the term, but lower down the hierarchy can then communicate with those higher up the hierarchy in terms which are much more relevant to impact. Rather than just being given the checklist of the things that they have to do, they can start thinking, okay, what in my arsenal, in my opinion, would be the best way to reach that commander's intent? And I can put that to someone in a language that they will understand and we can have a conversation and then find a better way to do this together. You're empowering everyone really in the organization to speak a shared language through that 100%. methodology. 100%. I think 
that's what's so fascinating is imagine, you know, the taxonomy of language within a product team versus a finance team versus a, you know, what other team. But if you have this standardized language of success and you were able to explain to someone, oh, like imagine for like a finance team, for example, you know, end of quarter closeout is a bear for a lot of them. AI is kind of eating the world, just like software did many, many, you know, moons ago. And we're now in a phase where a finance team could say, what if we could close our books, not in a week, but we could do it like in a day? Because our mm-hmm. tools are, are sophisticated enough to help us do that. We can automate a lot of these processes. We can find areas of efficiency that, you know, translate into this amazing amount of effectiveness. What does this free us up to do, you know, otherwise? What other things could we like if you could explain that to someone, like we took mm-hmm. our closing process from a week to a day and you told that to other teams, they'd be like, wow, that's pretty awesome. How did you do that? Right. Combined mm-hmm. language, this shared language of what success looks like for that team and being able to foster that idea in pockets throughout the organization. It gets really exciting. I remember talking to a senior leader, the way that they facilitated this. I think it was at Lean Plum, Mike told me they had a process where at the end of every OKR cycle, they had like a, a competition, if you will, where you mm-hmm. you could vote for any team that you thought had the greatest amount of learnings or the greatest amount of success with their OKRs. They allocated a certain amount of culture budget to this. And my understanding is a lot of times the teams forgot about spending the money from the culture budget because they were so pumped about getting recognized by a community of their peers for what they had learned or they have achieved and that that Mm -hmm. had great value but that only happens to your point if you were able to communicate what that value actually was and it sounds like if that had been the language that people in that all hands meeting had been using then it wouldn't have got heated it would have been a moment of opportunity a moment where Let's find a new, better way together because we've got all these amazing people with their amazing deep knowledge of particular areas. And that's why we merged with them. Let's see where this can, right. can take us. I've got loads more questions I'd love to ask about, about everything really, but I'm very aware of, of time. But there's one little question that I love asking people about their stories. And it's if you had to turn this story into a business book, what would you name it? What would the title? Oh, gosh, this is easy. Modern operating model, the modern operating model, for sure. So this -hmm. is something we talk about at Quantive all the time. Businesses today need to operate in a very different way. We're all familiar with KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. If I ask anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, what's a KPI, everyone can rattle off what that acronym means. And they probably can point to, to where what dashboards they own to showcase that. But given just how crazy the world is, right? AI is eating the world. Here we're in Europe, there's like geopolitical tensions we don't need to go into, but Mm -hmm. that exists. SVB died a few, what, like a month ago maybe now? That was scary because all of the banking institutions were like, is that a contagion? Where are we going to get our capital? The Mm -hmm. amount of like VUCA stuff, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, whatever you want to call it. It's accelerated. It feels just mental. And so businesses, we believe, need to operate in a different way. You need to define that destination, commander's intent. You need to run the business, and you're measuring that via KPIs. You need strategy as the center to all this stuff. 
And you need to translate that strategy of what you're trying to do net new to change and grow that business. That's where OKRs come in. And then you align the work. Mm-hmm. And all of that work gets supported to support maintenance things to run the business and to change the business. You run and you change mm-hmm. the business. And you do a bunch of work mm-hmm. to help do that, that points to strategy in some meaningful way. And you're consistently and continually assessing and adapting that environment. How are we doing? Are we doing the right things? Are we focusing too much on things that don't matter? That is the new story for the modern business today. It's the modern operating model. We talk about it all the time. I think we need a book on it. Mm-hmm. Run, how do you run the business and change the business at the same time in today's world? That's what you've got to mm-hmm. do. Sounds like a book you need to write. <laughs> so we've already mentioned your podcast. Is it Dreams, it is. Of, Dreams Deadlines? of Deadlines? You can find I'll it sure. wherever you find podcasts. Really cool Thank title, you. by the way. Appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, where else can people find more yeah, about Yeah, so you can doing? go to community.quantive.com. So I'm one of the founding members for the Dreams with Deadlines community. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Always happy to answer questions about this stuff. Jenny Harold. I have been starting to write more LinkedIn posts about OKRs from previous episodes. So if you're interested in checking that out, just, you know, give me a follow and happy to take you through that journey. And other things that we do, we have some events coming up that are pretty exciting. So Ben Lamort, the writer and author of a book with Paul Niven on OKRs from 2016, but he also wrote in 2022 mm. the OKRs field book. We're doing a event series together called the Office, Hour- Office Hours with Ben Lamort, where we talk about OKRs more in depth or, you know, for people who want mm-hmm. a refresher on this stuff, we do it, I think, every first Thursday of the month. And I also run this OKR Champions Roundtable every second Wednesday of the month. So, if you follow Quantive, you'll get notified of all of this stuff. But we do a lot of education and training on the practice of OKRs and how to do it well. Our community is an extension of this stuff. It's just going to supercharge all of this. So I'm excited about that. So there's a lot to check out, but definitely check us out. Quantive, Dreams with Deadlines, either the podcast or the community or both. And me, mm-hmm. like you can just approach me directly. I'm pretty open about this sort of thing. I love meeting new people who are interested in this topic. Thank you, Jenny. You've been very generous with your time. So thanks and hope to speak again soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Rob. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership for Unicorns podcast. Before you head off, I've got a small request to make. If you know another tech leader who would appreciate some of the ideas from this episode, please just click share and send it over to them. Also be sure to hit subscribe and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help. Until next time, I've been your host, Rob D. Willis. Thank you and goodbye.